Hi, I'm Sneha Shah. I'm the Managing Director for Africa for Thomson Reuters. And I run the uh, business for Thomson Reuters across the continent. We operate in over 25 countries. And we sell financial data, uh, regulatory data, ed- uh, information on um, who you're doing business with, as well as tax and legal information across the continent. Welcome to the African Tech Roundup. Thank you very much. You're straight off the stage where you've been a panelist for uh, a particular event. Tell us a little bit about what we what we've been here to do and listen to. Sure. So today is um, our celebration of Women's Month in South Africa. And so we're doing an event with Thomson Reuters, Nedbank and Accenture to highlight sort of gender equality and where we are and how far we need to go. And my particular panel was about gender-based violence and how um, it's actually holding back the economy of South Africa. Um, In fact, we lose 1% of GDP each year due to gender-based violence. And so really talking about it in the context of not just the social issues, but actually economic issues and the corporate workplace, how do we all start really tackling some of these serious issues as we talk about economic growth? Do you find that you you often need to make an economic case for these issues in order for people to care? I think to take it beyond the CSR, a lot of people have work in their foundations or they do something in their, in their charitable organizations towards this, but to take it to actually the boardroom where it becomes a core part of the DNA of a business, you need to show the business impact of these things because I think it needs to not just be something that you're doing for social good you need to understand that actually what you do every day in your business the people who come to work for you every day in your business are impacted by these societal issues and it's going to impact your business but it's also going to impact the country and so I think it's not about saying either or it's about bringing together the case to say these things are universal and they're affecting all of us. Look I don't immediately think of an organization like Thompson when when I think about the ills you've just unpacked. That's probably part of the problem, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. But I'll give you some examples. So in our organization, we have data around what organizations are doing internally. And we've got a diversity and inclusion index. And we find that actually organizations that are more diverse and inclusive across all fronts, whether it's gender, um, LGBT, youth, whatever aspect you look at it, the organizations that do better at that tend to do better in um, against their competitors in the marketplace. And so those are the types of things that we can bring to that conversation. Although we're not directly involved in fighting gender violence. I mean, these are the types of things that we can actually bring data to bear that allows people to make better decisions. And that's what we do every day. We also, through our foundation, do a lot of work to um, promote women's rights around the world. And we help, um, we've actually got journalists that help write stories on the underreported stories around gender violence. So I think it's up to each company, no matter whether you're in banking, in retail, to actually look at what do you do and how could you contribute to a better society and to combating some of the big issues. Do you find that it's key to have women in executive positions like your your own for these sort of issues to become, uh, I suppose, a mainstream concern or at least a, a headline concern within organizations like yours? Would we be talking about this if I was speaking to an executive who was sort of male, pale and sort of middle aged? I would hope so, because I think this is, this is something all of us have to be concerned with. All of us, uh, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, you know, husbands, wives. And I think that's one of the things we need to bring to bear to this. It can't just be the women talking about the issue. It has to be the men. And, and we talked a lot about that today, actually. There's a lot of men exe- male executives. We had the deputy director of the UN here today. He's a man. And he said, actually, he's working on this issue quite substantively. And so I think the more we can actually make this a, a human issue and something that all of us are having to fight, then it becomes something that takes it out of just one part of the corporate conversation.
At which point does it become counterproductive for every time you walk in the room for this default assumption to be, well, she must be representative of these issues? At which point does it just become wearying for someone like you? So I never get tired of it. I think we have to all fight for change. But I think it comes back to business purpose. Every single one of our businesses are in business for a purpose that's not only about shareholder profit, but is something to do with the society we live in. So for example, Thomson Reuters in Africa, our mission is empowering Africa's success. So for me, it's not just about finding only for, fighting only for gender-based violence, right? But also about fighting for how does disruption actually help empower Africa, right? How does technology become more socially inclusive? How do all of these things that actually we need to tie to bring the profit um, in our businesses, how do we actually do it in a way that's good for society? And so I don't ever tire of that conversation. I don't think it's ever counterproductive. And I think the more we talk about it, the more it becomes mainstream. Let's talk about the nitty-gritties of that purpose because, you know, that's uh, something that I'd like us to, to talk about a little b- bit more. Uh, you know, what Thompson is here to do. I, I don't know that too many people even understand what Thompson does, the distinction between uh, the sort of insights and uh, knowledge business, if I'm even putting that correctly, and say the newswire business. Give me a sense of what you're here to do, perhaps globally, and how perhaps specific to the continent you're sort of trying to apply yourself to that purpose looks like, what that looks like. Sure. So there's three different parts of our business. And so there's a financial risk business, which is around providing data, insights, technology to help really empower financial markets. There's a tax and legal part of our business um, that is all around how you provide data and insights to professionals in the tax and legal space to make better decisions. And then there's a news part of our business. And so those three things are quite separate, um, but they come under the one umbrella. And the, the transaction that you're referring to is is a partnership with Blackstone for the financial and risk business, which is now going to go separately under the new brand Refinitiv. And then the Thomson Reuters will remain the tax and legal business and the media arm. So as to what we're actually doing in Africa to change uh, the... Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you there. So in the context of your presence on the continent, are you present in all three forms under one umbrella or are you here representing one of those business units? So at present, I represent all of those. Um, post the transaction, there will be a split between those businesses on the continent. Let's proceed then. Um, I want to understand what those business unions do. The first one you said helps resource markets with, with insight. What, is, what does that look like? Well, how is that insight packaged? Yeah, so, so I'll actually take you back from the purpose because I think it's always important to start with the purpose. So Go ahead. If you start with empowering Africa's success, we actually went out in the market and said, we're a data and technology company with a lot of solutions. And let's start with what Africa really needs. And as we went out and talked to our customers and talked to the markets, we came back with three very tangible things that people wanted to change. So one was around empowering financial markets. They said, unless we empower Africa's financial markets, we're never going to be competitive on a, on a global basis. Sorry, and who are these people? So it's normal. We, we talked to banks, we talked to corporates, we talked to um, people who are sort of uh, customers of those banks. So whether it's just individuals or maybe it, it, government people. So we talked to a lot of people and we, we went to all of these stakeholders and said, tell us your biggest problems. And, you know, of course, there were lots of problems that we couldn't deal with. There was things like healthcare and poverty that we don't directly impact but the ones that we impact so the first one was the financial piece around inclusion and growing financial markets the second is around who you're doing business with and this idea that we have to change the perception that somehow doing a business in Africa is risky or riskier than the rest of the world and so and the third one was actually around there's a fundamental thing in Africa around land and and it's obviously a very big debate right now in South Africa but actually in South Africa there is better understanding of who owns the land in the rest of Africa there's a more fundamental 
legal issue, which is you could have five title deeds to one piece of property and you don't even know who owns it, right? So, so and, and without that, you can't get access to mortgages. And so in a country like Kenya, you have 40 million people, but only 20,000 mortgages. Now, you can't create a robust middle class. You can't actually create a thriving economy if people don't have access to mortgages and they can't own their own homes. So, so those are the three things that we came up with. One was the financial piece, one was the risk piece, and one was the land piece. And the way we're combating them through our different businesses, so I'll start with the land one because it's the most fundamental. We've got a business in our tax business globally that digitizes land records. So we work with governments across Africa to help them take those paper records that they've got in the basements, digitize them, deconflict them, and put them into a system where they can then charge property tax. And so the most evolved form of that in Africa that we've got right now is in the city of Cape Town, where we've been supporting their tax um, systems for the last seven years. And they've been able to increase the amount of tax they, they um, get back from society, but also more people are paying in because they're seeing the benefits. So they're able to give people services, which they wouldn't have been able to give because now they've got a revenue source. Then in Nigeria, we're actually working with Lagos State, where we're helping them at a, at a much more basic level, just fundamentally take the initial records and digitize them. And then we'll develop a tax and valuation system on top of that. So that's very much on the tax side, how we're addressing the land issue. And when we do that and we partner with banks, you're now going to be able to see many more mortgages issued. You're going to see more investment because now foreign investors will have sanctity of land rights when they come into a country. And so these are the things that really, really matter in our tax business. Then on the financial side, we also already work with all the banks across Africa to help support their foreign exchange trading platform. So all the foreign exchange traded across Africa, whether it's a central bank or a bank, comes through our systems. And so we're able to help see everything from how much volume goes through, but also we're able to set the benchmark rate for the currency so that investors know when they can enter and exit a currency. And we're trying to do much more automation and sophistication in that to allow these markets to develop beyond just basic foreign exchange to deriv derivatives, for example. So we're trying to evolve those markets. We're also building fixed income platforms for these markets to allow these bond markets to really develop because as we know African bond markets are very underdeveloped and so that's on the financial side and then on the risk side we're doing a lot of work to make sure that people in Africa have transparency and people globally have transparency about who they're doing business with so we've got a global business headquartered out of Cape Town called WorldCheck where we do deep background checks on individuals um, sanctioned entities, politically exposed persons and we sell that data to investors and governments and banks to make sure they're not doing business with people that are going to bring down the reputation or put at risk um, the country or the, the company. Okay, so I'm curious to know, okay, what's the cash cow here? And in the context of your particular role, how much of your KPAs are linked to milking it right now versus positioning Thompson to be viable during the short, uh, medium and long term? I think that the, the time for companies that were purely profit-driven is gone. And I don't think that's just an Africa statement. I think that's a global statement. So you're not getting fired just yet if you don't sort of hit certain targets revenue-wise or whatnot, or, or are you? <laughs> Um, hopefully not, but I but I, I don't think actually that's what I'm being measured against. And you know, when I talk to my superiors, when we listen to shareholders, when we listen to the board, they want us to be a purpose-driven company. And purpose-driven means you have to make some long-term investments and you have to take some short-term sort of profit and make some short-term uh, sacrifices as well. So it is all about putting together a cohesive strategy. But I think there's also a fallacy in the world that says either you're making money or you're doing good. I think it's absolutely possible to make money and do good at the same time. And, and 
And that's what the unique opportunity I think Africa is presenting to the world right now is you can be incredibly profitable and sustainable and really solving big problems for the world. And that's what we're doing, right? So none of what I do is charitable. We do have a charitable arm, but on the business side, everything I do is making profit and everything I'm doing is making money and it's growing. And in fact, Africa for Thomson Reuters is one of the largest, fastest growing economies in the world. Um, and so it's, it's really interesting for us to look at this and say, oh, it's an either or. It's not an either or. It's an and. And, and I think the more that companies and leaders start to understand that there's an and statement in between where you can be very profitable while you're solving big problems, um, you're actually going to get to a much more sustainable outcome. Well, to be fair, I mean, there, there seems to be quite a lot of evidence for the fact that this is the prevailing wisdom that runs our markets, that informs uh, corporate leadership, that uh, informs what shareholders expect from listed companies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Give me a sense of how you know the, these issues are framed at Thompson, and and while you're at it, give me a sense of where the newswire business fits into the model you described earlier. Sure. So the news has been the heart of our business and the history of our business, but it's really not the the biggest money maker. If you look in terms of revenue, it's not the the largest part, but it reaches a billion people a day. So therefore, we are very influential in in the way that we put out news, and we're very responsible for the way that we put out news in the world. And so that we take that very seriously, and our principles are embedded on that, which is I think it does inform the way that we make business decisions because we know that actually we have a responsibility to the world um, in everything that we do. And so therefore, you can't just go and invest in businesses that don't do something good for the world. And so I think that is at the heart of everything we do. But in terms of day-to-day, how does that translate into our business? It's very much around how do we how do we know like in Africa for example right my my mission is really around making sure that everyone who comes into our business is not just someone who's talented and, and skilled and able to deliver but actually has a purpose and so if you hire people who are purpose driven and you are a purpose driven company and your KPIs reward people for thinking outside of the box and driving sustainability and doing the good things then actually it becomes self-sustaining and you don't need to do anything to manage it right it just becomes part of the, the entire purpose but I do think having the roots in that media business has helped us quite a bit. And so back to a question you didn't quite answer, perhaps because I asked another question, but give me the top three earners in terms of like revenue for for the business, perhaps revenue or profitability, who knows? So I would say uh, definitely the financial markets business, because obviously as economies grow, the banking system grows, the access to financing grows. So that's the biggest part of our business. And it is continuing to grow quite fast. The fastest growing, although it's coming off a lower base, is our risk business. Because as you look at regulation around the world and you understand how, you know, the U.S. is no longer banking in countries where they are now going to be fined by their regulators. And so that business for us is a very fast growing business off off a, a lower base, but actually probably one of our most successful businesses globally and definitely in Africa. And then I think the third one is the land rights business and the digitization piece in the tax world. So given how no one is staying in their lane. You've got mobile telcos who want to be everything, but you've got, uh, you know, tech giants who are publishers now. You have governments going all entrepreneurial, the the whole impact narrative driving the foreign aid industry, quote unquote, all of these interesting things happening. How do you frame what is and isn't something you as Thompson need to get involved with? What is your filter for determining what sort of pathways to pursue in order to to develop products and services for your clients. 
Yeah, I think it is really interesting because someone said to me the other day that every company is now a technology company. And I think that's probably true in some ways. But I think every company is probably a content company at this point as well. Every content, every company is probably a B2C company. Even if you're a B2B company, you now have to care about your end consumer. And, and you know, social media and technology has really driven that change where all of us have to now be aware of each other's space. In terms of the lane we play in, we're very focused on our core business, which is data and technology, right? That's, that's what we do. And we bring the human expertise to bring it to life. Um, what we are aware of is we don't have all the answers. We don't have all the data. We don't have all the technology. We don't have all the people, right? And, and so what we need to do is know what we do really well, which is we have data on people and companies and countries and foreign exchange markets and technology that helps power those. But actually, there's lots of players in the ecosystem that we need to partner with to bring things to life. So some of them might be telcos. So when we talk about bringing financial inclusion to the farmers, the banks can only get you so, so far. The telcos seem to be going that extra mile to really be able to bring that that sort of financial inclusion into society. So we need to work with them. We need to work with NGOs who are creating a difference in the world and give them the right data to be able to do that. And I think it's about what is our place in the ecosystem as opposed to us thinking that we can solve everything. I'd have a hard time being one of those aspirational corporates trying to be other things. I'd be a bit concerned about how to approach doing business with the, with the likes of a Thompson. I mean, given how data is the new oil and all that and how under-politicized I feel data is an, as, as an issue on the continent and how you've got this whole new breed of big tech that's quite frankly able to monetize data extraction from afar. How do you guys navigate the relationships you used to perhaps uh, engage in quite readily in the past, whereas now in the back of the minds of a lot of your contemporaries across industry, you're potentially a a, a threat, a a competitor, definitely a partner they need to play with. Do you get my drift? So I think there's two different things here. One is the trust piece, right? Can people trust us? Can we trust them? I think the other piece is um, how do we actually work in an environment where everyone is a competitor and a partner and a customer at the same time. And so I think to address the trust piece, it's actually quite easy for us. When you're grounded in your foundation and your purpose, and we are very grounded in our trust principles and what we do, everything we do has to meet a certain test. And so people know us. We've got a 160-year-old reputation, right, of what we do and how we've been delivering data from the time of carrier pigeons to, to now, right? And and how we've been able to really respect our customers and our partners' trust in that. And so I have actually never had an issue of trying to rebuild that trust because we've we've not broken it and we hope never to do that because we try and stay true to our principles. In terms of this idea of people becoming partners, collaborators, you know, competitors all in the same space. I think it's a very interesting space. And I think it's an interesting space that regulators are trying to figure out how to navigate because I think you're going to see that more and more and more, right? Like all of us are going to have to start working together more if we are going to solve the big issues in society. But at what point does it become anti-competitive when there's too many big companies playing in that space together? And so I think it's a it's an interesting one. Um, what we tend to do when we start looking at our filter about playing with people in the ecosystem is to say if we have an open platform and we're truly a platform company then we should allow other people to play so we should take people's data um, allow them obviously to access um, sort of to monetize that data to be able to access revenue from that data but at the same time we should be able to use our own and share it and so I think we're moving to this open ecosystem world which is foreign to people who normally look at corporates and say well actually they sit in that box right and I think we're all going to have to get more comfortable navigating that space but I 
would say it starts with your foundation, your principles. And if you have those right, you'll partner with the right people and you'll get the ecosystem play right. Look, as someone who's relied on Reuters now to just keep you know, abreast of what's happening in Zimbabwe, my home country, over the last few days, you know, one has to wonder about how that imaginary curtain between you know, editorial integrity and the hard-nosed commercial intent that are both represented by your organization. And, you know, and no more is that, I think, relevant than on the African continent at such a time as this where we're all starting to come to you know, a much greater realization of the power of, of soft power, the power of a narrative, the power of who's telling the news, who gets to project into public sphere, etc., etc. How are you thinking about all of these things? And are these discussions that, that, um, that bounce around off the walls of your boardrooms or not? Or are you just so on purpose that the market just trusts? So, you know, this is not a new problem. This has been a problem since Paul Julius Reuter founded Reuters. And so they, there's been in place for many, many years now a very strong firewall. It's not an imaginary curtain. It's a very strong firewall between the business. I'm glad you caught that because for, for a lot of people, myself included, I don't know how, you know, in my mind, how, how you know, real that wall is. And you're saying it is? It's absolutely real. So we have an independent board of trustees that governs the news and they are independent journalists from around the world. They're not just Reuters people. And that organization, the media organization, has to report into that independent board. Um, and there's also something, um, I think it's, I don't know what the formal name is, the informal name is the golden share. So the journalists can actually prevent the company from falling into the hands of someone they think will not keep with the trust principles. And so this most recent transaction with Blackstone, one of the terms that's very clearly spelled out in the transaction is that they must abide by the trust principles. And how that plays out day to day is that actually the journalists and the business units do not share information with each other. And so I have been in situations, I'm very much on the painful receiving end of this because our journalists often write quite scathing stories about politicians or, or government officials. People you've come to rely on for your pipeline. Yes, correct. So I would be doing business with somebody and and the journalist just broken a big story about them that's probably negative and and this has happened to me many times where suddenly I'm not allowed to see that person anymore because those people don't see actually there's a firewall between the business and, and the news but over time people are becoming more aware that actually these two things are separate um, but it's something we take very seriously and I think the constitution of the company the principles the way we compensated the reporting lines all of that supports it so it's not just a oh please trust us you know take our word we actually have some very foundational principles and structures in place to protect that so you know the <laughs> The big blue elephant in pretty much every room right now is Facebook. And, um, you know, we don't mean to throw them under the bus as often as we do, but it often just happens. And in fairness, they're just representative, I feel, of a much bigger uh, question around data, how it's, you know, how it's being used, how it's being extracted, how it's commercialized, who owns it, etc. So I'm going to run something by you and, and give, give me a sense of, you know, how this plays on your end and how you think about it at your organization. So I lean quite heavily in the direction of proponents of this ideal, which I believe is many, many years away, of um, citizens as regular as me, you and me being in a position to own their own data and have agency over how that data is, is monetized, right? And, uh, you know, I, I imagine a world where there's a straight line drawn between an extraction point of my data um, and, and a commercialization of that data and, and my being able to partake in whatever profitable, you know, activities ensue as a result. 
I mean, in the context of all the data you got, you guys are sitting on, mining on a daily basis, extracting from the world as part of you know your daily course of business. How ridiculous is my <laughs> is my assertion? Well, I I think there's a huge debate going on around data privacy around the world, and you know I I, I don't think I'll adequately capture sort of what the company is really thinking, but I will tell you what I think, and and what I think is that there is no more concept of privacy of data anymore, right? Where like your data, even though the EU may try and regulate it through through GDPR, and and absolutely companies need to be very respectful of it, but data is in so many places and so many ways today, and some of it not even recognized. I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day who works in a tourist destination, and he works for a telco, and he said, when you come into this tourist destination that I'm not going to name for obvious means. Um, they, the telco is allowed to track your data as long as you're a foreigner. So, so your cell phone can be tracked in your location wherever you go in that place and then be sold to the sort of hotels, et cetera, et cetera. So they can see actually Italians like to do this and South Africans like to do this. And so, you know, you don't even know your data is being used. And so these are the types of things that I don't think regulations really caught up on yet. And I, I like your idea. I think it would be amazing if all of us can have that fingerprint and, and our data can then be brought back. I do think technology is evolving to the point that your idea may be real. Um, but I think the cat's already out of the bag with a lot of the stuff that's out there already. And so I think that this idea of privacy and what's in the public domain and what's private anymore is shifting to a point that we're not going to be able to recognize it anymore in a few years. Yeah. I do also think that this requires a commitment uh, at sort of the highest possible level within corporations, nations, etc., um, towards interop- interoperability, and and that requires us to revise our thoughts about IP and and, and whether or not anyone has the right to develop you know, commercial advantages over sitting on, you know, tons of quote unquote IP, however that's described. And so, yeah, I, I take your point. I'm, I'm curious also about um, your sense of who's a competitor in your mind. It just occurs to me that, I mean, who isn't a competitor and how do you frame a short list of people to watch um, or people to, to cooperate with as you think about where Africa is going over the next sort of 10, 20, 30 years? So I tend not to think too much about the competition because I think that you actually lose your purpose by doing that. I tend to think about what I'm trying to achieve and who my customers are and how I work with them. But in terms of who's going to disrupt our world, um, that's going to be the startups. It's going to be the people who are sitting there trying to solve really important problems for Africa and are going to come up with some amazing solution. And what I want to do is instead of them replacing me is bring them into the ecosystem. And so that's the play that we're trying to make is how do we find those startups? How do we nourish them? How do we make sure that together we're working towards a common set of problems and how do we then create a bigger platform for everybody um, and I know that sounds like it's just a very corporate answer but it's really true for me it really does sound like a corporate yeah. answer I'm glad you you outed yourself but I mean okay no, but I, I genuinely believe it. Our, our problems are too big, right? You look at the issues in Africa, and, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm from Kenya, so for me, this is a very personal issue for me, is we cannot have over 60% of our youth unemployed in South Africa and think it's okay. We cannot have the access to land rights issues that we have. We cannot have so many people excluded from the financial system. We cannot have so many people without healthcare on this, on this continent. We have to solve those issues. And all of us are joking if we think we can solve it ourselves, right? Not me, not like Google, not Facebook. No one's going to be able to solve those issues by themselves. And so it's only by really embracing people with good ideas who are the disruptors on our continent and giving them the platforms 
of the, the, that the big companies can actually provide, can we actually solve those problems? And I think that's the big eye that we have to keep on the prize, right? Is that's the purpose. The purpose is we want to make Africa an incredible shining light in the world. We are going to have 50% of the world's working population coming from this continent by 2050. And, and it's in our hands now to decide whether that's going to be a good story or a bad story. And, and so that's the purpose. All the rest of it is just sort of what you do day to day. But that's what we all have to work for. So my second last question to you involves um, this hashtag Africa is a country um, conundrum that <laughs> we find ourselves in. And, and Thompson's headquarters on the continent are based in Cape Town, in a place, a city that many don't consider part of the continent in many respects for many different reasons. I won't go into that. Um, but it is a loaded concept for a lot of people that, um, one, that you guys are based there, but also the question of how in tune are you with the nuances of every market and if not you who because given the intelligence you guys scrape you know in the course of your your business one would hope you have a much healthier appreciation for the various nuances of every market and yeah so what is your take on that and how does it inform how you you sell into the market and 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 service your clients on the continent so just a quick correction. The global headquarters for our risk business, for our world check risk business, is in Cape Town. So it's actually Africa leading the world there, which is amazing. And in terms of localization, we don't have, we don't say, oh, we only operate out of London or Dubai or Johannesburg. We actually, we've moved beyond this concept of regional headquarters. We've created regional hubs. So we have a regional hub in Johannesburg. We have one in Ghana and Accra. We have one in Nigeria and Lagos. We've got one in Nairobi. We've got one in Mauritius. And we've got um, a news bureau in Senegal. And so we're very much across the continent. That's how you do it when you roll heavy like Thompson. (laughs) Absolutely. I think you have to have local presence. You have to understand. To really be in these markets, you have to be in them. You have to hire local people. I mean, you look at all of our offices. They're all staffed by people from those countries. Many of them who've worked and lived overseas and come back. And so you bring the best of the global business and the local business together. And that's how you really empower markets. And so my final question, is there a question I haven't asked that perhaps you wish I had? (laughs) No, but I'd like to ask you a question. So you're on a really interesting mission with this tech blog, and I love it, and then the podcast. And so I'd love to ask, like, what does success look like for you? If you're really good at what you do and you're really successful, how does it transform Africa? Okay, so firstly, no one's ever done that. (laughs) Okay, that's good to know. As in, like, flip the question on me. What does this look like? We're very open about our agenda setting mandate. We really believe that we're in an age uh, in which narrative has business consequences, commercial consequences. You know, to give you some context, our listeners will know because they listen in. But, you know, for a, a big chunk of my childhood, I grew up in the Philippines, pre-internet. We were the only Zimbabwean family on the books at home affairs in that country. And every, every child had an opportunity to pitch their country to the rest of the class. You know, this is a third grade class. And all I had to work with was two paragraphs in the encyclopedia and two pictures, one of jacaranda trees and, and, and with the skyline of Arare and, and a giraffe picture. And what was trending then was the gods must be crazy. And Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan, Mariah Carey, maybe. And as far as everyone in my world at the time, that's all Africans were good for in terms of contributing to, world, you know, to, to anything that mattered on the global stage. And so fast forward, uh, let me add to that, I had a, a speech impediment and I struggled you know, to communicate in general. So fast forward to today where um, I, I get the privilege to, to not just 
contribute to to public discourse around key issues that I see um, are impacting the everyday lives of, 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 of people. I, I'm also blessed with an education that allows me to critically evaluate um, rhetoric that is spun into, into public sphere, often with well-meaning intent. But often that rhetoric has the dual effect of ruining a lot of things, a lot of potential, taking the steam out of the potential we might otherwise have as a continent or various markets. And so there's, there's something we live by here, which is oversimplification is the, the enemy. We try and steer clear of allowing our justice complex to blind us, to prevent our past. My team at African Tech Roundup is pretty diverse, and all of us have baggage we bring to the table and wrongs we'd like to see righted. And that's not always the most constructive way to approach shaping a narrative, contributing meaningfully in commercial terms, thinking pragmatically about people who frankly will only deal on the basis of you know hard data, self-interest. Yes, we're socially minded, we have a heart for the continent, we want to see our children grow up here, but um, in my mind, what, what does us winning look like? Mainstreaming the notion that all our stories are important, our criticisms of everything we hold dear is not a crime. It should be encouraged and, and celebrated. Our attempt to idealistically strive for a future that doesn't look possible or even you know, imminent is worthwhile. That failure is not, is not an issue. It's, in fact, formative. And I suppose a world that appreciates that you know, our brand of inquisition and that's a strong word, but frankly, often it comes to that. Our brand of inquisition, inquiry, curiosity, um, conversation is key and is sorely lacking in mainstream culture. And despite the good work you guys do at Reuters, I feel that there's definitely a place we inhabit that Reuters can't, in a, in, even at the best of what they do in, in the journalistic integrity you know, that's often represented by the work you do. So yeah, that's in a very long-winded fashion, um, a sense of why and what and perhaps a sketching of the world we'd like to see start to come to be because of the work we do. Yeah, and that's inspirational. And the reason I asked that question is because I wanted to bring that out, that actually there are players on this continent that are going to be painting something different, right? So so we can't play in your space. And I agree with you. I don't think that the Reuters journalists will ever play in the space that you are. Um, and actually going deeper into these things is so important. And so I'm just really grateful that you're doing the work you're doing. It's been phenomenal actually being uh, sort of interviewed by you. I think you asked me some very thought-provoking questions. But keep at it. And you know if we can partner with you love to that is awesome thank you so much we've been eyeing everything you're doing for a while um, and our listeners will know that we often reference the model that you know you've successfully as a, as a business uh, managed to uh, work at and I mean yes I mean we've also observed things that have given us concern about the work you do but at, at the size and scale of a company like yours having existed as long as you have there's a great deal to admire in the work Reuters you know has done in the past and, and coming from you it says a lot so thank you very much thank you